The 2017 Australasian Simulation Congress, presented by Simulation Australasia and Simulcast. So I'm here with Ben again at the end of day two of the Australasian Simulation Congress. It's been another day full of interesting simulation concepts and discussions. Ben, can I ask you what's been some highlights from day two? Yeah, look, so I forced myself to abandon my people today and I stepped away from the peds and the sim programs and went to the serious games panels and that was really fascinating and opened up some new ideas for me. I think I had a really fascinating chat actually with a professor from Bond, Dr. Jeffrey Brand, about uh, the state of serious games. And I think overall the things that I've taken away is that very similar to Sim, um, the serious games industry is having to have a, a very serious look at themselves about how they statistically back up their claims that they're helping people and uh, I think that there's a little bit more tension between the um, the sort of the academic community and these IT experts who are actually able to create the technology to make the games and are coming from probably more of a um, commercial background mm -hmm. and so watching that academic kind of tension and slight disagreement come out in the panels uh, was really fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. I think secondly the big thing for me for today was actually challenging my preconceptions on serious games and we saw a really fascinating number of I guess a fascinating breadth of games in the awards panel today and uh, some of the really interesting games were things like the Aboriginal community using a game to continue a pattern of verbal and ongoing storytelling about their history, uh, a game that taught intellectually impaired people how to recognise emotion um, through simple pattern recognition and repetition, um, and some a number of games uh, that included virtual reality hospitals and uh, virtual reality environments for mental health nurses to go and watch actors playing different types of mental illness um, and they seem very powerful so mm. I really enjoyed that. I did see a tweet about that we know games are fun and engaging do they really make a difference which I think was born of that controversy. Mm. Well I think we've got a little interview or two here so we'll go to that now. Uh, so welcome back to Simulcast and we're here at the uh, Australasian Simulation Congress and I'm here with Dr Jeffrey Brand uh, from Bond University and we've just sat in on a very fascinating panel on serious games and the state of the industry at the moment. I'm a professor of communication and creative media at Bond University. I'm the author of a study that we talked about in this panel called Digital Australia and we've conducted this uh, study for 12 years. It's biennial. And it gives us a sense of uh, the size and the nature of the games audience in Australia. Um, but the purpose of the panel was really to demonstrate that games uh, operate well beyond uh, the entertainment space, uh, that games and game technology and game development can be used for a wide range of purposes uh, outside of entertainment, such as education, uh, training, uh, could be advertising, marketing, and the panel was uh, organized to effectively illustrate that this is a fast-moving space, uh, that uh, there are huge opportunities for businesses, and I think for Australia generally, to focus on uh, building content for global audiences that may not be entertainment content. The panel highlights for me uh, were, first of all, that we had a group of people uh, who were from uh, you know, development uh, software middleware firms. Uh, we had uh, educators uh, who are testing the efficacy of games for education. Uh, we have um, members of defense uh, and 
we were able to establish, I think, that there is a conversation uh, that needs to be had and it needs to grow that tells us um, more about how games might be used in the future and where the economic benefits might be for Australia. So that, that in, in a summary, is the, the general character of the panel. It seemed to me it was a very interesting panel. It was one of, uh, I wouldn't say heated, but it was one of the more energetic panels that I've been to at some Congress so far. And it seemed like there was a really wide kind of diversity of opinion and motivations on that panel. And I, what fascinated me really was the, a little bit of the sort of philosophical tension between the needs of academia to prove the benefits of serious gaming, uh, which at some points seemed to be that the industry representatives had a lot of challenges with that need for accountability with kind of the velocity of their turnover of technology mm -hmm. and innovation. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great, great point to make, that the panel was diverse, and so they came to the panel with very different needs um, and very different filters uh, about what um, are pain points for them uh, in thinking about games for serious purposes. Um, and as you said, uh, you know, the, the need to demonstrate, if, I guess the one argument that was made was that um, if we're going to use games for what we perceive are serious purposes, just for example, to educate young people, we need to not only understand whether or not they work, if they have efficacy compared with, say, um, chalk and talk or, you know, text and uh, teach and text um, and, you know, exercises in the classroom, do using games actually improve outcomes for learners? Mm. That morphed into a conversation about cognitive development uh, and stage development and stage theories around learning. Um, whereas uh, from the point of view of um, the industry, um, there was a sense that, A, uh, things move too quickly to test. Um, we move through platform and technology cycles at a rate of knots. And um, in fact, a lot of uh, big players uh, in this space already have a lot of data, um, but that data is effectively commercial in confidence. Um, so, so I think the, for me, the takeaway was that, again, this is a complex conversation that is nuanced, um, depending on who's having the conversation, um, and that we need to probably um, hold more of these conversations uh, so that we can unpack uh, pain points and opportunities. Because I think that's the other point. If people are talking past each other, uh, then we probably can't leverage what is possible in this space. And it's very clear that, I mean, one of the conversations um, that evolved was that we have a critical mass in Australia. We have enough people, uh, but they're in different pockets. If you know, they have capabilities to build serious games for clients. Uh, they have the capabilities to build products that may have uh, you know, commercial value well and truly, but they're not able to connect with one another. Um, but if they're not talking about each other's pain points and they're not understanding, for example, how to get funding um, or uh, how technology changes or the need to demonstrate efficacy, then they're not going to be able to reach uh, commercial reality. Yeah, it was, uh, I guess this is a good opportunity at Sim Congress to start those conversations. How do you think the industry is going to take those conversations forward? Look, I, I'm just, just having conversations with a number of people in the room after the panel, uh, it, made, it was very clear to me, uh, you know, and indeed you know, taking questions from the floor, uh, it's very clear to me uh, that there will be more events like this out of the Congress um, this will be talked again, uh, about again at the Congress, and, but there will probably be other events uh, that will be held to uh, advance the conversation. So I think 
what I could see happening is a specialist serious games conference at some stage that would morph out of uh, or build uh, into the Simulation Congress more, more fully. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Continuing on our recap of day two, one of the other highlights was the interprofessional panel entitled Can't We All Just Get Along? And once again, this is a topic that we've been talking about in simulation for a long time. It's one of the areas that we feel simulation has some strengths. And so we had a couple of our keynote speakers participate in that. And we might go to that panel now and uh, think a little bit about what we're all doing in this space. All right, so I'm here with Kathy Smith and John Page and my compatriot Ben Simon and we've just been participating in a panel called Can't We All Just Get Along about interprofessional issues in simulation and uh, so Cathy Smith is from Baycrest Health Science in Toronto, Canada and John Page who's here with me is also from LSU Health in New Orleans and they've both got their own little takes on this particular issue but Cathy you were chairing the panel perhaps Mm -hmm. you might like to kick us off and why are we still talking about this in 2017? Uh, can't we all just get along? has been a topic now for 20 years at least. Mm-hmm. What's still left to talk about? One of the issues is that everybody, this was brought up in the, in, the, in the talk, that culture, it's the issue of culture. And it's the issue that everybody has their own model of what it looks like or what it sh- or they can have their model of what it looks like, what it should look like. And in terms of trying to uh, disseminate it and implement it, you have a lot of competing interests. You have time and money. You have different understandings of what it means. And you often don't get buy-in in terms of putting the resources in place so that you can have an effective uh, program running. So it's far more complicated than just doctors and nurses not wanting to talk to each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think you made the point, I really like the point that you made, that it's actually not always individuals. It's departmental or it's tribal affiliation. So it's not basically an individual, but it's like how we stereotype each other. Mm, Yes, Mm -hmm. and uh, Ben's going to give us some audience insights later, but I loved one Mm -hmm. of the tweets is, is this really about professions or departments or is it just about mutual respect for the people that (laughs) you work with? Yeah. Uh, so, John, I might ask you, because you have uh, gave us an example of the program that you run, can you tell us a little bit about that and what you see as the key success factors in it? So, uh, basically, I um, do interprofessional uh, education, uh, team training, and I focus on, pre right now, we're focusing on pre-licensure students. And the whole concept is to try to, as I say, get them while they're young, to try to inculcate them with... Uh, attitudes and knowledge and skill related to team-based um, competencies that they can bring into the uh, clinical environment and hopefully have a framework upon which they can um, combat what is often the tribalism and silo and the hidden curriculum that exists there, and that's very hard to do. But what we've uh, done is we've created um, Uh, what I would term distributed uh, events within the curriculum and one of the one of the talk about lessons learned is that we learned how to integrate the simulation based team training exercises into existing curricula that was huge instead of trying to create your own new curriculum that you try to bring people to you identify where that could fit and we put that in there and we take uh, various uh, teams one example that probably our oldest for this is our um, um, student OR team training program, which is now eight or nine years, 
We integrated it into the um, senior anatomy elective for fourth-year medical students. Basically, it's an elective uh, anatomy course, kind of a review. A lot of the people who go into it are people who are interested in the surgical fields. And we combined it with um, the uh, perioperative nursing course uh, of senior uh, undergraduate nurses and with uh, nurse anesthetist students who are getting their degree in nurse anesthesia. And we created an OR simulation where they uh, were that they were basically it, I like to say. So they were the surgeon and assistant, the nurses were the circulating nurse and the scrub, and the, the nurse anesthesia were the people at the head of the bed, and they were, it was their chance to make their decisions, their chance mm-hmm. there was no one to, to talk to. And I think it's a very valuable, that's a very valuable part of it in the sense that the fourth-year medical students are used to be medical students, and they're going to be interns very soon. And so it's an opportunity for them to do that. But the idea is to kind of reflect the WHO idea of what interprofessional education is, is learning two or more professions, learning with, from, and about each other. And one of the things I really try to stress is I try to have the nurse anesthetist teach the medical students or the medical students teach Mm -hmm. the uh, nurse anesthetist on things that they know that the other side doesn't necessarily know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a critical thing that you said there is teamwork shouldn't be seen as a separate domain of learning but one that's integrated when you're talking about the technical aspects of what you do in your uh, work. So, yeah, it's integrated into these two courses. It's part of the course as opposed to a separate thing. Yeah, nice. Good point. Uh, so I might come back to you now, Ben uh, and Kathy. but Ben, the audience were involved in this panel as well. Mm. They had a few reflections and an opportunity to ask questions. What do you think were some of the themes that came back from the audience? Look, I think a little bit like yesterday in the Insight plenary, um, the questions evolved over the course of the panel. <laughs> and at the start of the panel, again, people were really keen for tips and problem-solving um, help from the experts about how do I get um, teamwork you know, sort of functionally working and how do I improve my skills at, at teaching teamwork in my environment. And then as we started to explore more the underlying causes of why we have these problems with um, teamwork in the first place, we started to uncover some really interesting problems and theories about what um, caused it. And so there was mm-hmm. some discussion even about things like architectural design in hospitals <laughs> and how does that relate to how we work as teams, mm-hmm. but also some acknowledgement of how how we address this tension between some of the protective factors of tribalism and team identity versus um, the need for us to all work together to achieve the same outcome with patients. Mm -hmm. And uh, Cathy, did that surprise you or did the discussion evolve the way that you thought it might? Uh, Yes, actually it did. I was really hoping that people would start to um, reflect on broader themes and that its, its tips and tricks are they're helpful. However, it's really getting, it goes back to Deborah's metaphor. It's what's underneath the surface. And Mm -hmm. we just so rarely have a chance like conferences, face-to-face conferences like this are times for us to be able to step back and kind of look at things from a big picture perspective and, and just, just look at patterns Mm -hmm. perhaps and deeper meanings. So for the people listening, we had Deborah Nestel from Monash and also Jill Stowe from Monash describe some of their experiences with undergraduate interprofessional and also reference to a fair bit of literature in this area, uh, including uh, the use of the RIPLES score uh, that Jill used in some of her work, so we can put up a link to that on the blog post accompanying this. Uh, yes, I contributed to the discussion talking about our work at the Gold Coast, particularly across departments, which is, I guess, another variation on some of the issues. 
Uh, one of the things that you did, Cathy, that I thought was rather nice was you got the audience to spend some time reflecting on each of the <laughs> talks, which was a little <laughs> bit of a novel thing. Uh, do you feel that that sort of shaped a little bit what they take away in their engagement? I definitely do. It's a technique that I learned uh, from going to other conferences, and I would do it in a workshop, so it would be a version of a think-pair-share. And uh, my, my unofficial name for it is the cocktail party reception mm-hmm. and because it really breaks the ice down, and people aren't always comfortable uh, speaking in a large group uh, in a big auditorium. And so it helps them to process it and break it down. And then the other thing that I found, I've never done this before, the using Twitter was fantastic. And especially off the top, because people weren't quite warmed up, but they were prepared to uh, submit questions. And so I thought that that was a really great, it felt like it was a very engaged um, mm-hmm. conversation. And, and unfortunately, we had to cut it off it was really just starting to, to get rolling. Yes, but you're right. It might uh, enable people to participate in a mm-hmm. conversation that they might not feel brave enough to otherwise. Yes. Well, I have a feeling we're going to be talking about this for many years to come, uh, but with all the nuances that I think were illustrated in those examples. So thank you all for your time. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. And Ben, one of the highlights for me was watching you do your presentation. Uh, <laughs> so this was the Simulation Podcast Journal Club, and you really recounted a little bit about what we've done, why we've done it, and some of the numbers. Uh, did you feel like you made a good connection with the audience and maybe we've got some new folks who might contribute? I hope so. It was really fun, actually. I had a lot of nerves beforehand, but people th- seemed to engage fairly well and were laughing at the right jokes, so that was always good. And, uh, yeah, I'm really hoping that maybe this is another way we can get people on board is rather than just engaging through Twitter, having those face-to-face conversations at, at Simulation Congress. Yeah, because I think... The conference itself is a good example of how we do need these professional development networks for our own learning, not just our learners. And that was, I think, a point you made well. One of the other talks in that session was Jessica Stokes Parish, who is one of our conveners here at the conference, who was talking about her research in moulage. And I thought that was a very interesting area, one that we have featured uh, in Sim Podcast before. She's really taking it to the next level in terms of thinking about the impact that it had. What were your thoughts about that one, Ben? Um, I really love that presentation and her previous paper because I think it exposes such a critical blind spot that I think not a lot of us have been thinking about. Uh, So seeing someone with the class of Jessica kind of really taking a deep dive into that has been something I find really exciting. Fantastic. All right. Well, that's day two. Mm -hmm. We look forward to another day of Sim Congress tomorrow. Absolutely.